0: Revolutions happen fast. They can incubate almost unnoticed for years, and then pop, the next thing you know, its new world order. And so it is, it seems, with the ESG revolution. Once an ideology on the fringe, investment strategies taking into account environmental, social, and governance factors are positively blossoming. A new BNP Paribas survey shows, for example, that two-thirds of money managers and asset owners align their investment framework with the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. And why? Because there's alpha in ESG, and, quite likely, even the opportunity to create a more just and sustainable economic order. Sooner than you might think. ESG is set to become the investing norm.
1: You're listening to the Tigger Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Here's your host, Jeff Cassette.
0: My guest today is one of the catalysts behind our impending new normal. Over the course of the last two decades, he's had literally thousands of conversations with corporations on a wide range of social and environmental issues. First as head of shareholder and public policy advocacy at responsible investing pioneer Domini Impact Investments, and now in his newly created job as head of stewardship Americas for BNP Paribas Asset Management. Few have more experience or influence in helping companies evolve their ESG habits. And now, in an era of acute systemic risk, he's expanded his field of operations to improving overall system conditions at loftier levels, including the supply chain. On today's Ticker Podcast... Adam Kanzer, on why the fringe has gone mainstream.
2: The risks that we were warning about 20 years ago, you know, are coming true.
0: All that and more coming right up after this week's IR News Update. There's been a big fall in the global IPO market. Capital raising fell almost 40% in this year's first half, compared with the same period in 2018. Data compiled by law firm Baker McKenzie shows about $70 billion was raised across 514 IPOs. That marks the lowest for value and volume since 2016. The US federal government shutdown, continuing trade tensions between the US and China, and the ongoing Brexit saga all contributed to a slower market performance, according to the firm's analysis. Infosys took away two gongs at the IR Magazine Awards India earlier this month. The IT consulting firm won prizes for Best Large Cap IR Team and for Best Use of Media and Technology. The awards, which were well-spread across a range of sectors and companies, also saw Telecom Bharti Airtel's Komal Sharan win the award for Best Large Cap IRO, while the Phoenix Mills' Varun Parwal, won for Best Investor Relations Officer, in the small-to-mid-cap category. More evidence investors want better ESG reporting. A group of big institutions with combined assets worth over $10 billion is pushing for greater transparency at companies it sees as having high levels of environmental impact, but low levels of disclosure when it comes to issues like climate change, water security, and deforestation. The group, which includes the likes of HSBC Global Asset Management and Amundi, is targeting more than 700 firms, including BP, Amazon, and Volvo. The campaign is calling on companies to disclose environmental information through CDP, a nonprofit global environmental disclosure platform. Both the number of investors signed up to the campaign and the number of companies targeted have grown notably in recent years. In 2017, CDP's non-disclosure campaign attracted 57 investors and targeted 416 firms. And finally, evidence that some companies are increasingly keen to supply ESG information. IR Magazine editor Ben Ashwell caught up with Sally Curley, founder and CEO of consultant Curley Global IR, at the U.S. IR Magazine Awards earlier this year. Curley, who won the Lifetime Achievement Award, had advice for aspiring IR professionals and offered a window into the sort of help her new IR clientele was seeking.
1: I think the first thing that comes to mind is to be true to yourself. There, it's a very difficult profession. Um, and often you can question your, um, you, you question yourself, especially earlier in your career. Um, be true to yourself, trust your gut, um, honesty, integrity, tenacity in a lot of situations, um, and leverage the support network. This is an amazing investor relations is an amazing profession. It's an amazing group of individuals, um, and I think you know I wouldn't have gotten to where I am today. Without the support of quite a few people, so I would say leverage those individuals. Sure. Uh,
2: Now you've recently contributed several articles to IR Magazine and Corporate Secretary on ESG, and they've been fantastic articles. And so, what kind of work are you doing now around ESG and
1: the kind of work that you're doing with uh, with your clients? It was interesting when I retired from corporate two years (laughs) ago to hang out my own shingle. um, It was the thought that we would have a, a my business partner and I would have a three legged wheel. And that would be investor relations, corporate sustainability, or ESG, um, and uh, corporate governance Mm -hmm. outreach. And because that is what I had done for many decades, and that's what her experience had been for many decades. I expected it to be mostly investor relations. I would say that 75% of our clients are are ESG-related, or corporate sustainability. It's actually been quite interesting.
0: You can find a range of red-carpet interviews with award winners on IR Magazine's YouTube page. A friend once told me the story about wildebeest. It's tough being a nomad herd animal on the vast African plain. Once you've found a watering hole, you don't want to stray too far, or linger too long when in search of nearby food. You see, for a herd, timing is crucial. Leaving a feeding ground to go back to the watering hole, which could be like 30 miles away, too soon means some animals won't have eaten enough. Leave too late, and some could die of thirst before you got to the water hole. You gotta have a system. Wildebeests, it turns out, possess what is known as swarm intelligence. They can act as one. But when? And how does everybody know? Wildebeests do have a kind of leader, but deciding when to come or go isn't their job. Okay, so somebody actually watched a wildebeest herd, and it turns out that when, say, in a herd of a hundred, the 51st wildebeest turns their body toward the direction of the watering hole, everybody stops eating and heads back. All at once, no argument. If you think about it, it makes sense. It doesn't even matter if it's true or not. And now, remember that BNP Paribas survey of institutional investors I mentioned at the top of the show? Another question it asked was about how much of their funds would be allocated to ESG by 2021. Now consider 90% of about 350 of the world's biggest money managers and asset owners predicted that more than a quarter of all their funds would be allocated towards ESG by 2021. Of course, that's just an analogy. I'm not saying investors or corporate management are herd animals, but I do think we are at or near an inflection point. So I began my conversation with Adam Kanzer by asking him how we got to where we are. We're at a point now that people are suddenly paying attention. What's changed or, and why has it changed?
2: Well, it's cha- first off, I, I just want to reinforce, I agree, it has changed dramatically. And so I started in this field in 98. I was fortunate to come in at a time when investors that were talking about sustainability were to be uh, polite or essentially seen as freaks. <laughs> it was, you know, people didn't know what to do with us. Um, the other investors didn't really even know what to make of us. The corporations didn't generally know what to make of us. And at best, I'd say, you know, we were tolerated. Um, so we learned how to be very persistent and to con- continue to push and to continue to develop our arguments um, so that we could speak their language. You know, um, you you can't simply go in and make a sustainability argument. You have to make a business case argument. You have to translate these issues into the business case. Um, And I think, you know, as a field, generally, I think we got better and better and better at doing that. If you jump forward, we're at a time now when I think it's really fair to say that sustainability issues or however, you know, whatever term you want to use have gone mainstream um, Hmm. in, in the investment world. And I say that because some of the largest institutions, investment institutions in the world, pretty much all of the largest investment institutions in the world are working on sustainability issues to one degree or another. The intentions are different. The depth of experience, the depth of expertise is different, um, but everybody's doing something. And... I think if you ask them, many of—and I gave you an honest answer—I think many of them are doing something on this um, because of client demand, because of changing regulations, and because the risks that we were warning about 20 years ago are are, are coming, you know, are coming true. Um, there, there used to be kind of long-term risks, and some of these risks, like climate change, are now. Current risks, in-your-face risks, risks that are so large that even um, mainstream investors can't ignore them. Central banks can't ignore them. Though that's those are big risks. You know, it would have been nice if um, we we gotten more dramatic responses twenty years ago, and it would have been uh, it would have been easier to fix it. You know, it's it's concerning that you have people like Mark Carney feeling the need to speak about an environmental issue. Climate issues are relevant from a monetary policy perspective, to the
1: extent they impact uh, the forecast, uh, their path of the economy and inflationary pressures over the course of the next few years. You know, the tragedy of the horizon is that if
2: you rely on money, when it becomes relevant for monetary policy, it will be it will be too late. Um, Those issues shouldn't be so large that they become a threat to financial stability. Um, I'm thrilled that he has. I mean, he's taken tremendous leadership on on this issue. Um, But it's kind of a sign of uh, how bad the problem is and how long uh, we ignored it, that uh, it becomes something that um, central banks are worried about and uh, financial stability uh, regulators are worried about. So, part of the reason why the attitudes have changed is because the risks are now more apparent.
0: What would be holding back those investors who do not integrate ESG thinking?
2: I mean, hard to speak for them, (laughs) but I can speculate. You know, part of it is that, this is changing as well, but it hasn't really been part of the traditional training and education of investment professionals, um, which is why back, you know, in the late 90s and and, and before that, uh, when investors started raising these questions, uh, people just didn't know what to do about it. They didn't know how to respond. They didn't know whether it was appropriate to respond. They didn't know how to categorize these issues. I mean, I think you still see some of that. You know, you still see, oh, well, aren't these political issues? They don't really know exactly what box to put it in. So, Part of it is that it's just not simply in the toolkit, Um, and it's not on the list of things that the typical investment professional has been trained to to think about on a day-to-day basis. It's not necessarily that they're opposed, it's just they don't consider it to be their job. That's changing, and it's changing, I think, because the nature of the risks are changing um, and I guess also because you know, client demand but I, I think the risk the risk consideration is really driving things and you know if the skeptics um, didn't see money in this you know or at least avoidance of loss they wouldn't be doing it hmm. you know so I think that's always what's going to lead practice it's, it's going to be the hard numbers and the realization that these are real issues. Uh, and, you know, you have to think about them. And I think also that, that, that a lot of folks in the investment field see that I want to get ahead of this. You know, if, if I can consider factors that the rest of the market is not looking at, I may be able to get an advantage.
1: You're listening to The Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, the sound of global investor relations.
0: So the radical necessity to change things is manifest. And as fiduciaries, Kanser believes asset managers of all kinds are uniquely positioned to oversee a shifting investment paradigm.
2: Yeah, I mean there's a philosophy on the on the passive side that that would say, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not paying you to make those kinds of decisions for me. I'm paying you to track the market. Um but on the other hand, you're invested in these companies for the long run. You can't sell them. Whatever risks uh, they face or whatever risks they cause, um, you own, and it's incumbent upon you as a fiduciary to deal with them. Uh, and it becomes a beta strategy. That 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 term beta gets thrown around a lot and means a lot of different things, but it. it a lot of what we're doing is trying to change and trying to kind of improve the overall system conditions you know the overall health of the market as opposed to going in and trying to fix an individual problem at an at an individual company we do that too you know that that's part of that's part of this work as well but a lot of it and i think kind of the more interesting work is more systemic you know and that's where you get involved with public policy initiatives and um, speaking to companies about their externalities, about the, about the harms that they may be causing that may not be coming back to bite them, it may not be affecting their stock price, but it does affect the overall health of the economy. And it does affect, in some way, it does affect your portfolio as a whole, And that's which a, is a different way of thinking about things for, for most investors, I think.
0: I'm surprised that actually resonates with people. That, uh, you, know, that, well, that you know, lack that you of that beyond self interest. Um, I guess they're looking at the the whole pool kind of kind of deal. Well, it's not
2: necessarily that it's beyond self interest. Um, if you're a broadly diversified investor, uh, you know you're buying a large basket of stocks, right? You're invested in the market. Um, if the market is heading south, you know that's mm-hmm. y- you own that, right? If the market's not stable, you own that. Um, hmm. If there are companies in your portfolio that are having an outsized negative impact on overall market conditions, why not try to work to fix that? You know, so there is a self-interest to it because it, it it still does affect your overall performance and it affects you know the value that you're trying to deliver to your clients. It's just looking at it from a broader perspective, not stock by stock by stock. I still find I'm still struck by. How often you hear analyses about sustainability issues that are really just looking at the individual stock. Um well how is it gonna affect this company? Um well it might not affect this company, but it's affecting every other company that I hold. Um so that's a problem. Don't I have to worry about that? You know, weren't we all taught to diversify our portfolios? Well, that's that's what we've got. We've 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 bought that kind of broader risk. We we you know, we need to think about those implications as well. There, it, there, it, it, it's, it's been a long term struggle, I think, to get away from this idea that this is about charity or it's about, you know, altruism or, you know, some form of philanthropy. The, the, the full field, I think, of responsible investment has sort of been dogged by that for a long time. Well, yes, there are some people that want to give up some return in exchange for, you know, some benefit to some third party. And there are, you know, there are some, there are some uh, folks out there that are that are that are willing to do that, but that's not what this is about, you know. As, as fiduciaries, we don't really have that um, option unless, of course, we have a client that comes to us that says that's what we want. Um, most clients don't. What they expect is they want, you know, market rate returns. They want us to help meet them, meet their financial, their financial objectives. And we have to, in, in the course of doing that, we've got to manage whatever risk comes along. And we recognize that there's a broad range of risks that folks have been calling extra financial or non-financial, but at some point, they are financial or they're economic. You know, they're, they're, they're broader. Our actions and the actions of the companies in our portfolios and the, and the other instruments in our portfolios... Have an impact on that. They either they either affect those risks, so they either you know help create those risks, or they mitigate those risks, or they're impacted by those risks. That's just part of the package of of things we have to worry about. And I think part of the thing that that had got lost definitely in the early years, but I think is now becoming. Um, I think more well understood, is that um, if you are an ESG manager, a sustainability manager, if you're looking at sustainability issues, um, you're still a fiduciary. Um, Your obligations are the same as they were before. You still have to manage all those other financial risks as well. It's not one or the other, it's both. And actually, as a fiduciary, I'd say you have an obligation to think about these other issues, these broader issues that either may impact... Portfolio returns or may impact the welfare of your client and may impact the welfare of the economy that, that you live in. I mean, the economy provides a significant portion of the returns that we, mm-hmm. that we end up delivering. Um, so we have to worry about those things. You know, the companies get that. This is why the companies spend so much money on lobbying. You know, they know that the system conditions matter for their business long term. Um, they don't always have the right perspective on which system conditions, you know, matter and why they matter, but they know it matters and they're heavily involved in that. Investors have been more on the sidelines sort of feeling that that's not our job. We're we're, we're just simply supposed to manage risks. Um, we're not supposed to try to influence things. And I think that attitude also is somewhat changing. I mean, the way that we're Phrasing it is that you're either a future uh, future taker or a future maker, and the traditional view is that investors are future takers. Uh, you think about the future and you prepare for it. You hedge against certain risks and you invest for certain opportunities that you might think you, you, you may see will you may see you may think will come to pass uh, in the future um, based on your analysis of the way the future is. But you don't have any influence on the future. It is what it is. All of us, in some respect, are future takers. We have to be. That's part of the job. Um, But this future maker concept says that the decisions that we're making are also having an influence on future outcomes, that we're making choices about the future, uh, and that since we're making choices about the future, we need to be making the right choices, uh, and we need to try to shift things in the right direction for the benefit of our clients, you know, it's, it's, you, you never get outside that role as a fiduciary. Our, our first and last obligation is to our clients. Um, we need to keep their best interest in mind. But the future that we're looking towards um, needs to be the future our clients want to live in. Yeah. And they don't want to live in a four-degree world. That's an uninvestable world, and it's, not a, it's, it's an unlivable world. Uh, so it becomes our obligation to do what we can to shift things in the right direction. And part of what comes from that is that um, we actually have influence, uh, and that decisions that we're making actually do affect outcomes in the world, and always have. It's just that investors haven't really been paying attention to those outcomes, and so what you end up with is massive allocation of capital to fossil fuels, which... We now know most of which we have to leave in the ground if we're going to avoid uh, if we're going to avoid disaster. Well, that wasn't very good long-term planning. We essentially uh, we wasted a really critical resource. We could have been using much more efficiently and much more intelligently, um, but we burned up our you know our allotment. We we, we, we came pretty pretty close to exceeding our carbon budget um, to keep the earth you know. Under under one and a half degrees, so that's that's a consequence of not paying attention to the future. You know, investment used to be about uh, creating some kind of value in the real world. It's not simply based on what happens in your portfolio. You put money into something because you expect it to grow. That's what investment. You know, that's the kind of the core meaning of investment, right? So. When did it be at some point along the line, it became kind of foreign to the investment process to actually think about the thing you're investing in and what the outcome is going to be, which has always been kind of absurd to me, Hmm. you know?
0: Hmm. Yeah, but of course, up against that, uh, there is a theory that. Companies have a short term uh, orientation uh, to market mm-hmm. a lot of corporate management will say no, it's not us. we have a long term view on markets it's the investors that are forcing us to have a short term market, but right. whatever it is, right. there is that blockage there somehow, um, and maybe there yep. you know something as simple as their pay being you know tied to the next quarter or whatever mm-hmm. uh, when in fact what we 're talking about is thinking longer term for for everybody, is it enough to go to every company and say, "Look, you know, there is a market uh, answer to this," um, or does it at some point go beyond that and and regulators literally have to get involved and say, "Well, you guys aren't pulling up your socks quick enough."
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, regulators, uh, yeah, of course, have to be involved. I mean, and and always have been, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a truly free market. What you want is. Uh, a well-regulated market, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's for the most part what we have, you know, when, when the market has failed, it's, it's often been because of lack of regulation, the short-term piece. So that's harder to regulate, right? Because part of it, I mean, I think it's true that a lot of it is investors, you know, I've always thought that investors are at least half the problem here, you know, too many investors have been pushing for very short-term results. And, you know, really focused on on the next quarter and, you know, punishing companies that missed their earnings target by a penny or a quarter of a penny. I mean, it's, you know, it's ridiculous. But that's where things went. And and you can't completely blame um, corporate executives for managing to that if they're going to get punished for not doing so. Right. And then. Uh, we decided to align their pay with investors, and if investors were short-term, then of course you're paying them. You're paying the managers to think short-term as well. So there's definitely, I think, a lot of truth to that. And I have spoken with some, you know, executives over the years that have bemoaned the role of the investor and the quarterly earnings call and uh, the messages that they're getting, which they think add really no value because. What they're trying to do is manage an enormous enterprise for the long term. And it doesn't help to be thinking about the next quarter. So it, we all have to kind of think about how do you shift away from that? It, the, the underlying problem, I think, is just it's human nature. You know, It's very hard to think about the long term when you've got bills to pay now. Um, and you've got things that you can measure now the risks become more and more uncertain the farther out that you look. So, you know, it's not surprising that we, we've come to this. It's just that when you, when you can raise such significant risks that are clearly going to come to pass because the science tells you that it's going to happen mm-hmm. and you still don't take action, well, that, that seems like a, a whole different problem. <laughs> and, and that is harder to, that, that's a harder nut to crack. Um, if you know that you're facing disaster um, without changing course, and yet you still maintain the current course, you know, there's probably stronger words than are appropriate for a podcast, <laughs> for that kind of thinking.
0: Right. Or, or you're just not changing, changing fast enough. So, so what would you like the SEC uh, and regulators, and uh, what what would you like to see in terms of them? I mean, reporting is now pretty voluntary, essentially, right? There's no there's no particular standards. There's no uh...
2: well, there's you know there's materiality, right? Um, which is in the eye of the beholder, and it's an ever changing concept, and the bulk of, of the reporting or the, I guess the heart of the reporting is, is governed by materiality. I mean, there's also all sorts of, you know, very specific requirements that you've got to, you know, very specific things you've got to disclose. I do think that the disclosure regime kind of needs uh, needs a bit of a, a rethink. We do get a lot of valuable disclosures through voluntary reporting. There's, there's no question that, you know, the, the quality of the voluntary sustainability reporting I think is is valuable, and it's gotten better over the years. That doesn't mean that every company is on a par with each other, uh, and that's part of the problem that investors have faced. Um, yes, there's tons and tons of sustainability reporting, but it, it can often be difficult to compare them to each other. Even you know within industries, you'll still have companies where you know two peer companies, one will be doing a very good job, very thorough report. Um, and the other does nothing. Mm-hmm. And so if you're an investor that has to compare the two of them to each other, you know, what do you do? The, those are – that presents real challenges, and that's, that's the kind of situation where you'd like to see a regulator step in um, and set at least some minimum standards. The, you know, there's a downside to that too, which is that if you get – if they go too far, you know, you end up with um, – a lot of boilerplate disclosure, which you know, is what we have in many respects in the in the um, in the required reporting. So there's a there's there's a tension there. You know, the SEC I think put out um, back in 2010 they put out some I thought excellent guidance on um, climate reporting, and they didn't change the rules. They essentially said, look, this is this is the framework we've got currently. This is what materiality means. This is what the mDNA looks like. Um, if you want to think about climate change, here are the kinds of things that you might want to report. It's your decision, you have to figure out what's relevant to your business, but this is this is kind of a framework for thinking about it. And very little happened. <laughs> uh, very few companies took up that opportunity, that invitation to report. Uh, and I was on a webinar with one of the SEC staff that that drafted that that guidance, and he said, look, you could take any sustainability issue you want and kind of plug it into that same analysis um, because we didn't change the rules. We are just explaining what does materiality mean in the context of climate change. So you could say, what does materiality mean in the context of... Human rights, or in the context of water, or you know any other sustainability issue, we're just picking this one, you know, particularly significant one. The company didn't really take that up, and to me, that said you need rules. When, when you don't have a specific rule that says right here on this line, this is where you need to put your scope 1 greenhouse gas emissions and here's where you got to put scope 2 and here's where you got to put scope 3 and here's where you got to list your goals and your objectives and your and your plan for getting there if you don't have those specific requirements you're not going to get you're never going to get every company to do it you'll get some companies to do it and some companies are doing it a lot of companies are doing it but you're never going to get them all and the companies that have the poorest performance on sustainability issues are going to be the ones that will never report because why would they? Right, right. <laughs> They're not required to and their performance is lousy. So, you know, if you had an option between reporting great stuff or reporting not so great stuff, you know, if all you've got is not so great stuff to report, you're going you're gonna to stay quiet. That, that's just rational behavior, right? So to a certain extent, you do need regulation to set a floor and to increase the amount of information out there. The problem, I guess, is if you're going to have some baseline requirements about what gets disclosed, what what's the basic requirement to be disclosed and then what's within the company's discretion to disclose, that's where it becomes a difficult conversation. That's where you know you need to think long and hard about it because a requirement that's not the right requirement, it drives behavior and it could drive you know it could drive the wrong behavior. So you want to make sure that you know you've got the right, You've got the right indicators, and I, I think um, I don't think there's a lot of investors that are that are going to the SEC and saying, "Here's you know 150 things that I want you to require." You know, the SEC took a look at the whole Reg S-K uh, piece a few years ago, uh, and they had a very lengthy set of questions they put out for public comment, and there were. A- several, just a few pages in that huge release that was focused on sustainability that asked, what should we be doing on sustainability? And they got a flood of responses just on that few pages in this enormous release. A lot of investors wrote in um, and said, we need better sustainability disclosure. They didn't all agree on how to do it. They didn't all have the same model in mind. Some said it should be principles-based. Some said it, it should be rules-based. Some, you know, there should be line-item disclosures. Some should, there shouldn't be line-item. There was some, there was debate. But the overarching message was investors need this information. They use this information. It's valuable information. We need the SEC to do something about this. Um, I think investors would be thrilled if there was a formal process at the SEC to think, think this through. You know, um, rather than try to figure out up front what the the perfect solution is, I think more about kind of let's go through a process and let's get opinions out on the table and let's see what works and what doesn't work. I just think it's clear that uh, for whatever reason, and there's a lot of reasons, when it comes to sustainability issues, voluntary can only go, can only take you so far. (laughs)
0: let's back up a little bit and and talk more specifically about about you and uh BNPP you know beyond beyond i guess you lobby with the SEC and, and governments and and you you know you speak to people like the uh, accounting standards boards and stuff but how specifically is sort of bnpp a catalyst for change um and and how uh you know how are going to be changing bnpp
2: yeah yeah sure and and I should mention um, that we put out a global sustainability strategy about a month ago um, oh. that outlines our kind of three-year plan um, for building out sustainability across all of our assets globally. There's a lot of stuff in there, so uh, you know I'll only give you a couple, of the, a few of the high points. But uh, first off, it's important to recognize I think that. Uh, BNP Paribas Asset Management um, has been at this for a long time. Um, We were founding signatories of the PRI, and we had SRI funds before that. Sustainability has been an aspect of of our business for a very long time. And particularly in Europe, in terms of, you know, you ask for how are we a force for change – been very involved um, at the policy level on sustainable finance issues at the EU and very involved in engagements with with companies in our portfolio um, for many years on, on a wide range of sustainability issues from you know from deforestation to climate change to animal welfare to a whole host of issues. What's, what's new is one having this global strategy and a, and a real commitment to have an ESG component in every single thing that we do across all asset classes. Um, so that's a plan that's currently underway and it's, dis- and it's discussed in that document. In addition to that, um, we're building out our stewardship strategies globally. So my position as head of um, head of stewardship for the Americas is a new position. We also just hired um, a head of stewardship for Asia, which is also a new position. Um, Stewardship historically was managed out of Europe. And, you know, you can engage globally, but they needed somebody who's really on the ground in these other regions to, to, you know, to, to really pick that up and build it out. So we're in the process of doing that. And so, some of the commitments can you, can you are going to be some of the things. Talk that thing. a bit. What do you,
0: as head of stewardship, yeah. what, do you, what do you, do in the Americas? I mean, what yeah.
2: You... So, <laughs> it's a great word, isn't it, stewardship? Yeah. Um, so it it's uh, it, yeah, it's engaging with with companies in our portfolio on um, sustainability issues and governance issues. It's voting our proxies um, for the companies in the region, uh, and engaging in, in public policy work on sustainability which are which are essentially, you know, what I've done throughout my career. Those those are the kinds of the, the things that I focused on. And we're coordinating with each other to ensure that, you know, we have a consistent voice globally and that we're we're moving forward on the commitments in in that strategy. And the strategy also outlines there's there's three key kind of thematic pillars which we're calling the three E's which is Uh, The energy transition um, to a low-carbon economy, Um, environmental sustainability, which is largely, at least in the document, going to be focused on um, deforestation and water issues. And the third, which I think is kind of the most interesting, um, is equality Uh, and thinking about equality from a lot of different perspectives. Um, uh, Largely conceived, it's about kind of wealth and income inequality, um, and how to address that, which we see as a very significant systemic risk, to, you know, at a corporate level, um, questions about sustainable capital allocation running from the CEO all the way down to your supply chain. How does the board think about those issues? How should we as investors think about those issues? How do we think about the CEO to median employee pay ratio? Um, what's appropriate? You know, what's, what's, what's an outlier? What's not appropriate? how do we bring these issues down into the supply chain? How do we think about the role of share buybacks and corporate tax avoidance? And, you know, that all kind of, and and human rights issues fit into there as well. Um, So it's a lot of issues, but with a thematic, kind of a thematic focus. And as I said before, you know, the document also makes it very clear that we're seeing ourselves as future makers as opposed to future takers, that we're going to have a point of view. You know, we're going to try to advocate um, to move things in 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 the in the direction of these three E's because we see those as, you know, the kind of necessary pillars of a sustainable economy. Um, and so, as investors, we w- we want to try to build a sustainable economy. Um, but the alternative is just is, is unacceptable.
0: Panzer mentions supply chains. BNP Paribas is one of a small but growing number of banks that will structure supply chain finance deals so suppliers get incentives to improve environmental, health, safety, and humanitarian standards. More and more companies are focusing on sustainable supply chains, and one of the issues that has come to the fore is the question of how migrant workers are treated.
2: So this is when a a worker leaves their country um, because there's, you know, due to a lack of economic opportunities, they hear about some great job um, in Malaysia, let's say. And so they leave their country, they leave everything behind, they go to Malaysia, they get there, and their passport and all their travel documents are locked in a vault that's controlled by their boss, so they can't leave. Uh, And they discover that, They've racked up all of these fees to the recruitment agency that got them there. And it's going to take them six months to a year to two years to pay off the debt just for their job. So essentially, they're working for nothing. Uh, and in some cases, the job isn't the job that they expected. It wasn't the job that was advertised. Um, those are kind of the, in the worst situations they're, they're in just really unacceptable situations which, which risk their safety and their health, and they're essentially working for no pay. So we're, we're taking this to companies to say, okay, how, do you, are you aware of this issue? Um, is your supply chain exposed to, to migrant workers? Um, do you have policies that ensure that workers don't pay for their jobs? It's, um, it's an initiative that was launched by um, ICCR, the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility. And, you know, the good news is some leading companies have really taken this up and recognize that this is kind of a fundamental issue for them. So Coca-Cola, for example, has been, has been a leader on this. Apple um, has been a leader on this and has been reporting for a number of years the amount that they have required their suppliers to reimburse workers. So, they just came out with their latest supply chain report, and it's something like $30 million over the past, I want to say, like five years or so um, that's been reimbursed to workers. So they're taking it very seriously. Um, we are finding, though, that there are some companies we're speaking to that don't really seem to be aware of the issue and don't have the right policies in place. So there's a lot of work to be done on that. And, you know, it, put that under the pillar of equality, it's about equality of opportunity. You know, and, and nobody nobody should have to pay for a job.
0: I, I Indeed, um, everyone would agree with that, but to play devil's advocate, uh, like why yeah. do they care? Getting back to the business case, these people are units of production.
2: If you treat them as strictly as units of production, I can understand why you wouldn't care. But if you want them to be productive um, and you want them to be healthy... Uh, you do have to care. And, you know, if you worry about your consumers um, finding out about this, you need to care about it. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah. and, You know, but I, I, fa- I have found, though, that when you raise these issues with companies uh, and you explain the conditions that these people find themselves in, most companies are not going to ask you to go through uh, a cost-benefit analysis and help them make the business case and prove that they're going to make more money and that their supply chain is going to be more productive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They just see it as unacceptable.
0: Um, they see it as morally that, unacceptable. Like more, like it's really?
2: morally unacceptable. Wow, it's okay. not the way they want to do business. Hmm. And, you know, you asked me at the beginning of our conversation, how have things changed since, you know, the late 90s when, when I started doing this work? And that's one of the things that has been... Uh, a really significant change is that you've got a lot of very large companies that are willing to do things simply because they know it's the right thing to do. You don't, you know, we kind of, years and years ago, we had to make the business case argument and it was a lot of work, but you get to a point where they get it and they just want to do a better job. Um, So they've been monitoring their supply chain and now they'll come back to you and say, you know what? Here's a problem. We can't figure out how to fix this excessive working hours or um, student visas in China or just all sorts of issues that that come up, and we're you know we're engaging in this project here, and we're trying this experiment over here, and this doesn't seem to work, and this does, and what do you think? And it's really about we just want to do a better job. You get a lot more companies that are that are willing to go there. that doesn't you know. I don't want to overstate the case. There's still there's still yeah. pr- plenty of problems out there, and plenty of plenty of companies that don't get that. But there's way more that do than than there used to be. The nature of the issue has become so critical that you've really got a, a significant mass of companies that I think are are digging in and and trying to understand that stuff. Um, but you know they need encouragement. They need sometimes the role that we can play. I think is simply to serve as a catalyst or to encourage them to move in the right direction. Because a lot of companies will worry. Well, yes, I know this is the right thing to do. I think this will be good for our business. What will our investors say? Uh, this is a long-term investment. Um, this may come at some short-term cost. uh, Will our shareholders be okay with that? You know, I think for them to hear from investors that we're encouraging you to do this, that we need you to do this, we need you to go further, you know, sometimes it provides the spark for the company that otherwise would not have done it. And in other times, it's more like, you know, it's it's greasing the wheels for, for the company that would really like to do it. Um, knows they should be doing it, but uh, are worried that they're going to get a lot of flack um, for taking these steps. And so letting them know that the investor community, one, is not monolithic, and two, is changing dramatically, um, I think is useful, you know, and, and to let them know that we do have a long-term focus. And uh, we are thinking that broadly about these issues. Because then very often the companies are, are ahead of the investors because they have to deal with these things on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You know, their business to them is not abstract. Uh, to investors, it very often is. You know, it's, it's data on a screen. Um, it's an abstract portfolio. It, it's, not, it's not real world. Um, that's certainly not true for the corporations that we're investing in. You know, they they got to deal with these challenges day to day. So I think sometimes it's, it's refreshing for them to hear that investors are, are, are worried about those things, too.
0: So, now we get to the money question. With trillions of dollars already invested in ESG strategies and plenty more on the way, how can IROs work with people like Kanzer to shape the future? Well, listen up, folks.
1: I think
2: that when the, when the IR person sees their role as ensuring that the investor doesn't get to speak to anybody else, <laughs> and sometimes I think that's the unstated um, mission that they're pursuing. Um, that's not a constructive conversation, you know. When, when I feel like I'm, I'm being essentially told to go away, um, you know, they're giving me kind of pat answers, and um, I don't really feel like they're particularly engaged in the issue. That they're they're simply giving me kind of a company line. And they're doing it so that I don't, have to, I don't get to speak to anybody else. that's really frustrating, and that, that's that's problematic And to be honest, you know when if you have a really serious issue, if it's a pressing issue and, and you can't get any traction, that's when investors start to look to other tactics when they start to think about shareholder proposals or voting against the board or you know because you can't you can't get where you want to go.
0: How does a company typically hear from you? You, you call up the IR person and you say, Here's our issue. Um, how are you dealing with it? And, you know, we'd really like to talk to, uh, I don't know, your line manager who's in charge of, of, of mm-hmm. whatever it is, production. Uh, and then what would you like to see? What would be the right. ideal sort of response from them?
2: Uh, the answer to the, obviously, it, it, it's going it's to depend on, um, it's going to depend on the issue that I'm raising. And I think there's a difference between calls from investors that are simply trying to get some information. Uh, I read the 10K. I read the proxy. I uh, read your sustainability report. There's just a few gaps I need you to fill in for me. Um, I'm a little confused about how this works or what this meant. Hopefully, they can answer that question for you, and you, know, you move on. Thank you. That, that, that's great. But if you're calling because you're trying to advocate for a change in practice or a change in policy you're probably not going to want to end up speaking to the IR person. Huh. Um, the IR person might be a first point of contact. Um, sometimes it's the corporate secretary, sometimes it's the general counsel, sometimes it's the sustainability um, executive. But for me, if I'm talking about a supply chain issue, or I'm talking about climate change, or you know, some broad issue where I really have kind of an advocacy um, goal in mind, the purpose of the call for me is twofold. It's one, to understand where the company is on this issue. Do they really understand it? Or are they grappling with it? Are they serious? And you can't tell if you're not talking to the person who's actually responsible for that work. If I'm talking to a third party, and the IR person may be a third party if you're talking about human rights issues in the supply chain, I mean, that's not, their, that's not their day-to-day job. They're translating from something else, you know, and that's not really giving me what I need to know. If I'm speaking to the person that's in charge of that and I get a, a strong feeling that this person's serious about it, they understand what they're working on, that puts me in a different mindset because now I know, okay, I, I don't necessarily have to push them so hard. I can ask for a few things, but um, this company is engaged and they, and, they, and they get it. Very often, the frustration for me is you get off the phone, and i don 't know <laughs> i can 't tell whether the company either totally doesn 't understand the issue um, or if it 's just the person I spoke to is not the right person hmm. um, you shouldn 't feel that way you know uh, if the if you 're speaking to an i r person And they know that, look, I'm not really the best person for you to speak to about this. I can't go very deep on this issue. Let me give you the basics, and then I'm going to put you in touch with so-and-so. That's helpful, you know, um, because I want to know, you know, I want to know on a supply chain issue, for example, I want to know that this person has actually been inside a factory they know what it's like they've uh, They've worked with their suppliers. Um, they know what the challenges are. They're personally responsible for trying to meet those challenges. Um, if I'm talking to somebody who is um, tasked with purely communications, um, you know I'm probably not going to get that sense of confidence. Uh, I have spoken to some folks though that you know if they get the issues, if they really understand it, they're in depth and they can really speak authoritatively. Um, this, is the, this is the company position on this, you know, that, that, that's fine. We don't necessarily agree all the time, but at least I'm getting the answers to, you know, the questions I'm asking. Hmm. But if it's ring-fencing the whole thing so that I only get to talk to this one person, that gets frustrating very quickly, you know, and that can sometimes be kind of obvious. And, and maybe maybe the IR person doesn't realize how obvious that is, but <laughs> sometimes it's, it's, it's quite obvious that this, you're just trying to get me to go away. Nobody, nobody wants to receive that message.
0: And that's your Ticker Podcast for this week. My thanks to BNP Paribas' Adam Kanzer. Maybe we're not all doomed after all. Visit IR Magazine's website for the latest news and insights from leading IR professionals around the world. Subscribe to the Ticker Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette.